I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Do you wonder where your food comes from? More and more people do. America's corn farmers work hard every day to grow a crop that you can be proud to serve your family. And they're doing it with an eye towards sustainability, caring for water, air, soil, and resources that fuel healthy families and more sustainable products. Take a look to find out how farmers in rural America work to make life better for all of us, from cities to their rural communities. Learn more at ncga.com. NCGA, a commitment to the future. Very welcome along to the Hello Breakdown. We're on to episode three now. It is the podcast that looks at the XG and performance of Celtic. It's not getting any better. We're going to be looking at the Hibs 2-2 draw at the weekend and looking at the fullback situation. We did centre-backs last week, if you want to listen back to that podcast. And we also did the team as a whole a few weeks ago as the very first flagship podcast. So if you want to listen back to any of that, you can find it on iTunes, Spotify, Spreaker, wherever you get your podcast, we are there. I'm joined on the line, as always, by Juco James and by Celtic by Numbers, a.k.a. Alan Morrison. Other way about, I should have said that, but oh well, we're all here. Guys, it's not getting any better. The performances seem to be utterly the exact same as they were over the last couple of weeks before the international break. We've had some breaking news this morning with the Green Brigade turning up to the stadium, unfurling a banner. If anybody hasn't seen that banner, it essentially says, save the 10, time to go nil. And they put up a post on their Twitter account as well with a statement from the Green Brigade asking Lynn to step aside and for the board to act now and get someone new in and save the 10 in a row. I'm torn on this. I think their statement pretty much summed up a lot of what fans are feeling in the sense of, they love Neil Lennon, they respect what he has done, they know he is a club man, and it hurts them to ask him to go, but they need him to go, and Celtic really do need, need that. Well, I, if I could, uh, I would just like to welcome the Green Brigade to the Neil McCann uh, conspiracy with me. Um, so I, I have to make light of things because they're so awful. If I don't try to joke, I, I start crying. I start weeping just uh, uh, spontaneously. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I think that's a big deal. I think, um, you know, I, I think that the, um, the, the element of the, the supporters that were staying loyal um, and really trying to shout down others that were expressing uh, uh, counter opinions over the last few months, I, I, I think that group is pretty small now. 
Um, and it's unfortunate. That, that's part of what I had talked about back in August and even July about part of my fear about all of this was that if things kind of headed in the direction I was worried that they would, that um, things could really turn toxic. And I think we're unfortunately seeing that um, as it pertains to, to Lenin. And uh, I'm worried it could start transitioning over to Brown as well. Um, and, and it just shows the, the importance of proper planning and making good decisions. And, um, you know, that was one of the issues I had about the risk of this season because of the pressurization of sentiment. You know, people are really dealing with a lot of crap in their lives already. You know, you guys over there going back down in the lockdown, you know, people, you know, life's, life's not real great right now, generally speaking. Um, you know, personally, they, our governor just banned alcohol sales again. So I'm, I'm having a hard time <laughs> the last couple of days. <laughs> uh, didn't get the stock up in time like I did back in March. Um, so, you know, it's just brutal. And um, I, I really fear for what's happening um, and how toxic this is getting. I think it is a big deal. I'd agree with you, James, completely. Um, I wonder, I do a speculation, I wonder what the atmosphere in the games and in the ground and around the ground would have been had, had fans been, been uh, obviously allowed to go to games. Would things be dragging on as long as they appear to be dragging on? So look, listen, I focus on, as I've said many times, I focus on performance, right? And for all of the uh, sentiment that I have as much as anyone for, 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 for members of Celtic Football Club across the, across the board, management, players, my, my question in my mind is always, you know, what, what are we doing on the field in terms of performance? Is it demonstrably getting better or can I see signs of improvement? And I think we're going to go on to look at some sort of trends uh, with, with James in a second. And uh, I think I'll, I'll save my comments maybe for responding to that. But there's, there's, no, there's no good way that this is going to play out, unfortunately. Uh, there's no nice way to do this. Um, you know, there, there just isn't a positive angle to it, unfortunately. Um, a positive angle possibly only the only positive angle would be something swift and decisive at the board level that would spare things being dragged out and people feeling they had to make these public outpourings of uh, of, of uh, dissent really uh, and which is no, nobody wants right but so yeah but let, let's get on to the performance analysis because i think in there the truth the truth will lie yeah so let's get into the performance from the <clears> weekend <throat> two two against hibs away uh, Diego Laxalt and Odson Edward scoring the goals, saving a point for Celtic, and it really was saving a point for Celtic. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can tweet us at Huddle Breakdown as well. We posted a few stats up there last night. We're going to be talking about the fullback situation in a little bit, but we do want to talk about the performance against Hibs. So from my point of view, anyway, from the weekend, it looked like Celtic went away for two weeks. Neil Lennon took the two weeks off and literally did nothing to change the shape of the team, the dynamic of the team, and what the team were going to do. Is that what the stats say as well, James? Was it just more of the same? Yeah, from a top-down perspective, absolutely. The general trend of, um, you know, and I think some of the charts we'll look at and show on, uh, on the YouTube broadcast uh, that shows XG differential. So basically what that does is it, it uh, compares the quality of chances, the aggregate quality of chances, uh, number, you know, think of a kind of a simple math equation, uh, number of chances times the quality of chances equals kind of the overall XG. And then we compare what Celtic did with that side of the equation 
minus what the opponent did in this case, Hibbs, and that gives you kind of a, a, a differential. Um, you know, a, a minus B equals C. And uh, that number continues to be uncomfortably close to the point where, um, uh, you know, if you just do basic probability analysis, like a Monte Carlo simulation or something like that, it's, it's a coin flip game of dropping points. Um, so, and ultimately when we're in the title race, that's, that's all that matters at this point, given the hole that we've dug ourselves and the, the form and, and uh, performance levels of Rangers. So um, we need to be growing that differential consistently now. You know, the margin for error is almost zero at this point um, or very small. And that's whether you look at the Motherwell game. This is why Alan always harps on looking at performance levels over results uh, and what, whether, what they're predictive about uh, towards. And uh, so basically, you know, the trends that we've seen and, and Hibbs continued it is we're not creating enough chances. The quality of those chances and on average are quite poor actually. Um, and then on the flip side of that, we're surrendering too many chances. And on balance, the quality of the chances that we're surrendering are higher than the quality of the chances that we're getting, okay. we're making. Yeah. So, so when you bundle that all up together, you, you know, that's basically been the problem all season. And um, game to game, that kind of normal variance, you're going to drop points. And that's, that's where, you know, obviously we've been seeing that. So let's talk about the quality of chances that we're creating. And one player that you want to focus on in particular is Ryan Christie. A couple of weeks ago, Ryan Christie scored an absolutely stunning goal against Aberdeen in the Scottish Cup. And he does like to take shots from distance and from different angles. And that for you is actually a problem for Celtic at the minute. Yeah, I mean, this comes back to the, uh, the romanticism of the game versus uh, stat dorks. All right, so no, no one... Uh, no one dislikes a, a 25-yard screamer that's top shelf, right? Those are, those are glorious. Those highlights are wonderful. Um, but statistically and from, you know, kind of a predictive basis, it, it's just not a good decision to do it in any kind of volume. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. You're looking at a lot of those shots having probabilities of less than 5% to go in uh, on, on pr pretty regularly. And, and a lot of times he's making decisions of, you know, shots that are really like 1%, 2% kind of shots. So uh, the game against Hibbs was an example where I think he took seven shots. Five of them actually were on, on target. Um, but, you know, the aggregate XG was, was very low. I think it was around 0.2, something like that. So his XG per shot was like 0 0.03. So you're, you're talking he has to shoot 30 times roughly in order to score on average. And even if he's a little better than average, and I think he is, I, you know, his, his, his track record is, is he's kind of a, he's a decent long-range shooter, but the volumes he's taking is the problem. He's leading the team in shooting. He's averaging about four shots a game in, in competitive competitions this year. That's up, by the way, compared to his track record historically. Um, I think his average XG per shot's under 0 0.08. Uh, and, again, I, looking to benchmark, um, you know, if I look at players like Arfield, Aribo, or even Haji at, at Rangers, they're shooting almost 50% less uh, with twice the quality of shots. And, and if you, you know, their minutes are different, but if you kind of bundle them up into one player and average it out, they're basically creating the same amount of XG on half the shots. 
And uh, that's not even factoring in what's going on with, you know, chances that they're creating for teammates. That's purely mm -hmm. just their own shooting and decision-making on, on shots. So the, the other big thing that when you it fits into this kind of mosaic is, you know, Christie's been turning the ball over about 14 times a game between 14 to 15. And, and that's a pretty high rate. And I think that bleeds into why there's this mixed perception on Christie. Uh, a lot of people view him as kind of a volatile player. He, you know, his decision-making, I think, justifiably is questioned. Uh, but risk-taking always has turnovers. I think generally, you know, I, I kind of read and hear the same thing about Haji from Rangers supporters. You know, Haji's kind of a risk-taker. He, he turns the ball over a lot, too. Um, and so that's it kind of built in. But even within that, I think Haji's turning the ball over a little over 11 times per game. Christie's outstripping him by mm -hmm. almost three. Uh, you look at somebody like Arfield, he turns it over eight, like eight times a game. So, you know, when you benchmark these things, um, those, those long-range shots, and he had a couple of them early last year, uh, I think in qualifiers, and then maybe against, uh, uh, I think it was Motherwell or St. Johnston, I forget, early in the season. And then basically he didn't make another one for most of the rest of the season. Um, he kind of clustered three within two games or something <laughs> right. and, and used up all of his probability early. And that's the other thing. That's the problem with variance and sequencing here is if you do this a lot, you might win a game with two of them. And then, you know, like Ferenc Faros is a good example. Our decision-making and shot selection that game was atrocious. So we had our, our XG wasn't horrible that game, but so much of it was just, you know, excuse my French, crap. You know, guys shooting from 25 yards through four defenders, that kind of thing. Tons of shots blocked. And, you know, instead of playing through players and teammates to try and get better, better quality chances, it's just a high volume of, of garbage. And, and that's, you know, we come back to this issue of decision making. So I would even venture, even though our differentials are bad, um, the quality of the XG that we're creating is even, makes that problem even worse because of, the, like, I keep coming back to this concept of variance. Uh, just uh, yeah, to sort of supplement that, I mean, it has a place, right? So, for example, during the Invincible season, Celtic scored something, and I'm sorry, I've forgotten the numbers. It's been a few, a few years now. Something like 17, 19 goals from outside the box, right? A phenomenal number of goals from outside the box. And we exceeded our expected goals over the season. And, that, and, and so you had a combination of a dominant team with the best players playing a fairly expansive game to quite a well-defined structure with some key players like Rogic, Roberts, Dembele, Armstrong, all in top form. Uh, and, and the low probability shots were going in far more than you'd expect. And that's, why you, that's how you win an invincible treble because there's a lot of factors there that you get right. And, and, and by the way, the luck's with you as well, if I can put it that way. Because uh, if you're exceeding your expected goals on long shots over a long period, you're either Lionel Messi or, or you're lucky. It, it really is, is, that, is that simple, I would say. I'm being very crude here. So yeah. this season, I think, as what James is saying is, we're still trying lots of long shots, but it's not within the context of having control of the game and those long shots supplementing great chance production because we're controlling the game, we're dominating possession, the ball's going into the box, things are happening there. This is pretty much the sum total of our attack at the moment. Yeah, and if I, if I could add something to that, Alan. So, um, you know, if you look at a sport like basketball, uh, one of the, the, the main shifts that's occurred that some people don't like, and it's happened in baseball and, 
in, in American football, even hockey to a degree where, you know, analytics has caused a change in strategy fundamentally in ways and basketball, it's just chucking threes, you know, run and chuck basically is the mm. dominant strategy now and even selecting where they shoot from. But the difference there is they get three points, <laughs> right? There, there's a, there's a probabilistic difference by shooting for three points versus two. Mm. Well, Christie shooting from 25 yards isn't 1.5 goals or two goals. Mm. So, um, you know, if you see somebody like Seth Curry, who's uh, the Lionel Messi of three pointers in basketball, that's, you know, that's why he's a crazy good player is not only because he's that good from distance, but he gets three points for it. Mm -hmm. But but you're also, you're also, sorry, James, you're also compounding your problems because if you're shooting from long range, there's a couple of things that are less likely to happen. You're less likely to um, then get the second ball close to goal, where you've then got another chance against a disorganized scrambling defense. You're less likely to get a corner and you're less likely to maintain possession because a long shot tends to be, uh, you know, aerial and tends to be hit with a lot of force, which means it could go, you know, the ball could go anywhere. Whereas shooting from short distance means you're more likely to get a deflection, a corner, some further pressure, some further uh, opportunity. And you reduce all of those uh, aspects as well. It's interesting what you say about changing the nature of the game, James. I was thinking there about Manchester City. You could almost see it happening in football because Manchester, the way Manchester City play is all geared around constructing attacks that result in the ball being cut back into the central area in the middle of the um, penalty box for, for a shot at goal. And it would be boring if all teams played the same, frankly, but I don't see that happening. <laughs> yeah, well, when Raheem Sterling scored, I think it was 22, 23 goals in a year, most of them were from the six-yard box because... Perfect, beautiful, Bart, I love that. Guardiola <laughs> outlined the, the problem with Sterling was that he couldn't shoot. So what do you do with a player who can't shoot? You get him into a position where he doesn't need to shoot. He needs to just put his tap foot in the right in. position and tap the ball. And, and there, 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 there is a job for Frimpong. Somebody who's really quick can anticipate, get into... The, all he has to do is stand in the, get into the six-yard box at the right moment because yeah, <laughs> he can't shoot otherwise. Yeah, so in Ireland as well, in Irish Gaelic football, we've seen a trend as well that James had mentioned of we actually have a score, what's called the scoring zone and the best teams don't shoot outside that scoring zone because they know that their probability of scoring is far less likely to score outside that zone so it has been become quite boring quite monotonous and every team does try and do it so you you don't want that to come into football exactly but you do want Celtic to be choosing the right shots at the right times and when they're controlling the games. But uh, Alan, you kind of segued nicely into what we're really going to talk about more generally about Celtic and that's fullbacks. And you have told me to start with the defensive stats because we want to finish with the offensive stats and maybe not be such a, a such a, I don't know, negative podcast, but it's, it's hard to be not to be negative when the teams are playing so badly. So let's talk about the fullbacks then. We'll yeah. start with defensively. So essentially we're talking Greg Taylor, Jeremy Frimpong, Diego Laxalt, and uh, Elhamid as well. So where are you looking at in terms of their performance in XG and what are, what are we actually looking at before we get into the numbers? Yeah, sure. So really, again, last, last week we looked at centre-backs and for defensive performance, we looked at, at two key um, uh, aggregated metrics. One was defensive action success rate, which is an, an amalgamation of uh, defensive actions uh, that you're, are successful versus unsuccessful. And we looked at possession one. So it's defensive actions that result in Celtic maintaining possession versus losing possession. And we, 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 you know, we, we showed that actually if you plot those things, um, it, it passes the eye test. And the, the players that you'd expect to be at the top of that kind of graph, uh, the Van Dykes, the, you know, the, the, the Juliennes and so forth and I are, are up there. 
and then the, uh, you know in the little corner of sadness at the other end are the people you'd probably expect to be there so if we look at are the fullbacks again in a similar vein and just trying sort of um, you know, really uh, start to build that picture of overall fullback performance. What I've done is I've really um, used as my benchmark um, Lustig and Tierney. Because I think Lustig and Tierney, uh, I think most Celtic fans would say, were a pretty high uh, benchmark for what a good fullback pairing would be. You had a bit of everything there. You had the drive, aggression, the, um, the pace, the attacking intent of Tierney, as well as a very tenacious uh, defender, no-nonsense defender, you'd say, did the simple things uh, well from a defensive perspective. And then on the other side, you had Lustig, very experienced, calm, measured, uh, positionally very strong, would fill in any gaps caused by other people attacking, excellent long passer of the ball, but wouldn't sort of bomb up the wing, wouldn't beat people, wouldn't sort of be getting too many crosses into the box. And if you plot fullbacks defensively, um, uh, you know what you'll find is that at the top of that uh, top of that uh, graph, really, in terms of defensive capability, is Lustig, and Tierney's not that far behind. And really, if you look at the current crop, you know you've got El Hamid, who his numbers are a little bit polluted by the fact that you know he plays a little bit at centre back and, and a little bit at full back. So you'd expect his his defensive numbers to be strong. Um, and then really, you're looking at um, you know where do the where do the current crop lie? I think, you know, Laxalt is probably somewhere, I would say, in the middle. He's not, he's not a tyranny, but he's probably stronger defensively than Taylor and Bolongoli, for example. Uh, Taylor is pretty average, actually, um, much like Bauer was last year. And then in our little corner of sadness down the bottom left, we've really got Frimpong. And actually, Frimpong's defensive numbers are such an outlier that essentially it suggests that you're measuring somebody who plays in a different position, is what I would say. He's, he's, he's too variant from the, the normal distribution of fullback defensive performances to, to suggest that he, you know, he does actually play fullback. And that, that actually might, might be pretty accurate because you know, he's played in a 3-5-2 a lot as a wing back. And you know, he is kind of learning his trade as a defender. And that's, so it's probably not a surprise to anyone. But what I'd also add is that in general, uh, the fullback's uh, defensive performances are down on last year. And I think that's more speaks to structural issues rather than individual uh, performances. And one of the issues that we have defensively, uh, you'll, you'll have heard me talk about the concept of packing. And just as a reminder for, for people new to this, packing is essentially looking at forward passes. And you get credit, essentially, you say you've packed somebody if you pass forward and you, the ball passes one of the defensive players, goes to your teammate successfully, and you've effectively taken that person out of the game, i.e. they're now behind the ball uh, and, and the player with the ball is, is in front of them um, and the goal. So that, that essentially is a, is a, is a good measure of, of many different facets of play. But if, you look, if we flip that, the other side of it, which is to say, to what extent are our defenders getting packed? Because you really don't want your defenders being packed. If a defender is suddenly uh, the wrong side of the ball, that's generally going to be trouble. That generally means that if a forward's in space, it means that another defender's probably going to be dragged out of position. And it suggests that, you know, the system's kind of broken down a little bit. So you don't want high packing numbers against your defenders. And if you look at the rate at which our fullbacks are being packed for 90 minutes, again, if you look at the, uh, the sort of, in this case, the low numbers, which are really good, you've got Lustig, who was rarely packed. You're talking about three times a game. And Tierney, he was up at four times a game, which is remarkable to say how far forward he played. And then if you look at the current crop, you've got at the top, Laxalt and Frimpong for this season. So if you say that, you know, three, four times being packed a game 
because it's, it's pretty hand, handy, you know, but we're happy with that. You've got Laxalt being packed over 10 times a game and Frimpong around eight times a game. And it's just indicative of two things. One is that we've now got two attacking fullbacks who bomb forward. And second of all is that means that we're, you know, we're getting exposed. The opposition can now play wide. They can play balls down the channels and they can take uh, uh, our fullbacks out of the game. And what that and the you know the collateral damage to that is things like you know Duffy getting pulled out of position, going to have to meet opposition players out wide. That's not his comfort zone. He's not a quick player. He's not a mobile player. And no wonder he's getting exposed when he's having to you know cover uh, the whole fullback uh, position uh, as well as uh, his own his own job as well. But what is interesting is systemically, if I move away from the um, individual performance back to the uh, sort of system again, is that the highest pack rates over the last few seasons uh, of fullbacks going back to Tierney and Listig are all, have all occurred this year. Taylor is being packed more times than he was last season. Frimpong's being packed more times than he was last season. Laxalt's being packed more times than Bolongoli uh, was uh, last season. So that means that not only have we got players in, in whose nature it is to bomb forward, but the system they're being asked to is actually uh, inviting that. So defensively, individually, uh, the defensive numbers are going down, and collectively, and not surprisingly, uh, it, it's it's being exploited by the opposition. So correct me if I'm wrong here, but for for example of a, of a pack or packing, Jeremy Frimpong for uh, Nesbeth's goal at the weekend would would his him he didn't really challenge the defender in there, but that 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 forward headed it on to Nesbeth, took him out of the game, and then he was exactly. still involved. That's an example of of what packing. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and the, the collateral damage of that, because now Duffy's anticipating this, uh, is that he's, you know, or he's, he's anticipating that Frimpong's going to lose the ball in that area. And, and actually, just the whole system then starts to collapse, right? If you've got two out of four defenders or, or two out of five in a, in a, in a three-five-two, in a three, suddenly uh, out of position, the whole system tends to collapse because other people have then got decisions to make. Do I stay with my man and then just leave this guy? Or do I compensate and then I leave a gap? And it's a horrible uh, set of circles. That's why that defensive shape and organisation is so critical. And it's such a basic thing. James, anything catching your eye? Yes. So I think what's uh, what's interesting to me, um, there was some reporting this week by Karen Devlin from The Athletic um, on uh, the, the Cynic Patreon, which I'm, I'm a patron. Proud supporter of fan media across the board. Uh, uh, myself for years now and and um, he, he had mentioned on the agenda which is their their Monday podcast uh, about you know basically his reporting um, that Lennon had been taking over more control this year this season um, that basically last season was kind of a hybrid as they transitioned away from um, Rogers and that, that that was kind of the Kennedy wing let's call it and that they kind of uh, 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 had had this hybrid approach, and that you know I think it's un it's not um uh, it's not unusual when people under stress um you know start to try to take more control, and certainly there's been a stressful season so far. I can imagine that making uh, Lennon want to take more control, and uh, so that structure that Allen's talked about, where we had you know tyranny bombing on and Lustig staying back. Um, it's not there anymore. I mean, we, we have two fullbacks way up high. And, you know, I, I'm a macro guy. So I, I hear things 50, 50 different places and I try to get the, 
you know, kind of a mosaic as far as what the pieces are fitting together. And, um, you know, looking at Lennon's track record historically, I mean, he likes his fullback bombing on. And, and so that, that to me makes sense relative to what Devlin reported. Um, and, you know, that's the kind of decision-making I keep being critical about. I, I, don't, I don't understand why we would do that. Um, as we segue into the, uh, the attacking part of this um, discussion, and we discussed this, I think, last episode about, you know, in theory, I could understand if those two fullbacks were attacking and putting up elite uh, output in attack. Yeah. Um, but they're not. So it's, it's, it's really strange to me that this is the decision-making process. It, it seems like a rigid ideology almost, regardless of, you know, kind of what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, plan A is this and plan B is do this better. Don't, don't adjust. And it's clearly not working. Yeah, and you can see that from Neil Lennon's comments after the game that the players are taking this for granted or they're not working hard enough. There's no real substance to what he's saying. It's essentially just moving the blame on from himself to the players. The best example of attacking fullbacks and what Celtic could potentially look to do with their talented fullbacks is Liverpool. Why does the Liverpool system work? Well, firstly, they've got the best defender in the world in Virgil van Dijk playing centre-back, so he compensates for the defensive actions of the two fullbacks going forward. But they've also got two defensive midfielders doing the hard work in midfield. And also, on top of that, they've got something we touched on in episode one of the Huddle Breakdown. Their pressing game is much more developed than Celtics is. Celtic don't press enough in the latter half of oppositions. Moving on from the defensive attributes then, because one of the things that we posted on the Twitter, the Huddle Breakdown, if you want to follow it, is the attacking output of these fullbacks, which shocked me. And I think it shocked a couple of other people as well because the supposed attacking fullbacks in Laxalt and Frimpong, they're not as effective as we'd like to think. That's right, and uh, you know, and just building on what what James said, you know, and your comments about Lennon's what Lennon had said is, you know, the players not getting it, or they're not working hard enough because actually, they appear to be doing what Lennon wants them to do, but actually, is is the is the lack of output because. Um, they're not working hard enough, or because actually you just you're asking players to do something they're just not capable of doing. So if we look at attacking output of the fullbacks, and again uh, for those on on YouTube, we'll see a, a chart at this point. If I can just explain for everyone else, I've basically mapped two things. One is um, expected assists. So that's essentially the quality of the chances that you're creating, and then on the other dimension is really the number of key passes. So that's the number of passes that you're providing from which a shot results. So it's essentially it's a measure of, of creativity, both in terms of volume and quality. And again, if we start with our benchmark, based on the last two years, Tierney and Lustig are actually middle to bottom uh, by these metrics based on our fullbacks um, uh, attacking output. And that might surprise people, especially Tierney. But actually, it's, it's, a, it's an indication of how the fullbacks have been made to, uh, are being expected to play the last two years. And actually, last season, it was pretty successful because you, you, based on last season's output, not only Bauer, Frimpong and Taylor, but also El Hamid actually posted better um, attacking metrics by these measures than, than Tierney did throughout his Celtic career. That's quite astonishing, really. Uh, but that's a function of um, how the players are being asked to play, but doing so within, a, I would say, a more... A, a more rigid structure, or at least a more organised structure, uh, as you as you alluded to there with Liverpool. If we flip to this season, essentially 
based on the games that I've seen so far, Laxalt's attacking productivity, and I'm not talking about how quickly he runs forward, how aggressively he presses, how many tackle challenges he wins in the final third. I'm talking about his final third chance creation quality. He's no better than Lustig. And Lustig was rarely in the final third. Lustig created passes from deep. Lustig, didn't, Lustig was useful in the box and heading in goals, but in terms of creating passes from the byline, that wasn't his game. Frimpong is now regressed back down the chart. Uh, the one who's actually uh, exceeding, the only one who's exceeding performance from an attacking perspective is Taylor. Taylor Taylor's actually way up the chart because he was having a great season uh, from an attacking perspective. Uh, what I will say is, number one, it's a small sample. Number two is Taylor tends to play against the weaker teams. And I do think we have to caveat that. I'm not suggesting that Taylor's the best option here, but you can't deny that in the games that he's, he's been asked to play, he's actually delivered the goods. He's delivered an expected assists of over 3.5, uh, 0.35 a game, which is fantastic. Yeah, no, feel, no, sorry, go on. No, no, and just the, the, other, the other piece I wanted to bring into play from an attacking perspective was looking at, again, mapping two sort of uh, other metrics. One is um, full uh, cross success rate, and that's pretty simple, right? It's just number of crosses attempted uh, you know, below number of crosses successful as a percentage. And then another one, which is a little bit more of an aggregated, which is final third effectiveness. Think of final third effectiveness as being the number of times, the percentage of times you get the ball in the final third, and uh, rather than just lose possession and nothing happens, something creative happens, like you set up a chance, uh, you win a corner, or some, or you we win a free kick, say. So something that keeps the momentum of the attack going. Uh, and and what, what again, if you look at Lustig and Tierney, uh, they they are kind of in the middle of that chart, and they are definitely the, the sort of higher benchmark. And again, if you look at um, the players last season. Uh, versus this, Frimpong's underperforming by this measure, and his cross success, by the way, is now under five percent, and it was never better than about seven percent in any case. Taylor's number, Taylor's numbers are about are holding up quite well, um, and Laxalt. But it, you know, bear in mind, I've not I've not um, collected the data from all the games, but in the games I've seen so far, Laxalt hasn't completed a single cross successfully. And if you look at his career, he's got an assist rate of I think point one three. Um, assists for 90 minutes so what exactly did you expect I mean he's performing pretty much as you'd expect Laxell to do if you'd, if you'd done the most basic scouting and the most basic analysis of the most basic publicly available stats that you can get on the guy so what I would surmise is you know Lennon's getting what Lennon's getting his fullbacks to play in the way that I think he wants them to play but to me the numbers suggest they're clearly ill-suited to playing in that system and by the way Having two people playing in that way is creating huge defensive problems elsewhere. Yeah, I just analytically, I wanted to uh, um, mention a couple of things. Alan touched upon it. So um, strength of opponent is something that's, there's different methodologies to do that. You know, some people use ELO ratings or uh, various other ways. You know, there, there's some uh, modeling you can do to try and come up with a framework to adjust numbers based off of, off of the strength of your opponents. I think that just from the raw data perspective, uh, without doing that kind of, to kind of come up with a number that you can compare, um, which it gets a little messy and can, you know, garbage in, garbage out risk there. If you just look at the raw numbers, I mean, I think in fairness to Laxalt, it, it's also probably why his defensive numbers look so good is because his, his sample is not only small, but it's also tilted heavily towards, you know, Lil, 
uh, Milan um, yeah, in, that, in that regard. And, and even his domestic games, you know, he's had Aberdeen, he's had Hibs, he's had, um, I think his first game was Rangers, right? So, um, you know, that, that's a pretty high level of opponent. Um, and the flip side of that, and, and Alan and I have gone back on this even in the past, so if you, if you do kind of a decomposition of, of Taylor's performance data, it's very lumpy. And, and he's put up huge numbers, like crazy huge numbers against Hamilton, right? So yeah. I think he had three assists or, you know, his XA was crazy against Hamilton in the first game of the season. And so if I, if I go back and I look at the time series of his performance data, kind of game by game, um, you know, his, his performance levels against quality opponents is actually quite poor. Yeah, I'd agree. Uh, he's, he's, you know, it's almost like um, racking up huge number. And, and that, that's not a criticism. It's he has a place, I think. Right. This goes back to coherent strategy and squad rotation instead of playing people into the ground. I mean, if we're home against Hamilton and we're playing a back four, play him. I mean, absolutely. I'd actually probably prefer him over Laxalt in that kind of situation. Yep. Um, so th I think there's a coherent way to, 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 for him to be a very significant contributor to the team and the squad. Um, but playing him as a wing back against Rangers or in Europe, ain't it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I just wanted to touch upon that. Uh, the, the other part, um, and this is actually the first time I've seen that, that data from Alan, particularly um, in the final third. Uh, and I, I think, you know, th this is, this is going to be controversial <laughs> generally. Um, I mentioned this when they, I think when they signed them, Laxalt. I mean, I think Laxalt's a good player, but I think the, you know, I'll call it the orgy of love <laughs> about him and amongst the support it has been a little out of kilter um, relative to what he's offering. And the idea, I mean, I think he's 28, if I'm right. Is that, he's around there. Around about that, yeah. Yeah, so he's not young. The idea, you know, there's talk of swapping ire for him in a, in a transfer deal. I mean, the, the, our model should not be signing 28-year-old fullbacks at a high cost. That, that's right at the beginning of his decline curve physically. So he's going to be peaking right around now into next year physically. Not saying he's going to become a bad player, but – you know, he, he's not getting faster from here. So one of his main uh, things that he contributes is his, his motor and his athleticism and getting around the pitch and getting into tackles and winning tackles. So as he slows, his value is going to decline. So th this, was, th this is not a smart setup to be making a huge investment in a left back. And ironically, the profile of a player that, you know, made sense was Bolongoli. Now, again, obviously Bolongoli had all kinds of issues. But, you know, when I go back to uh, last season and I, again, decompose Bolongoli's statistics and his performances, the, the, the relative sentiment towards him compared to the relative sentiment on Laxalt, I don't think they're significantly different players on a quality basis. Meaning that Laxalt's better, clearly, defensively. Uh, ball progressions, they're kind of similar, even if you look back at um, – Laxalt's time preceding being at Celtic. And, and I think Bongoli's was and is a, a better attacking player. And that's evidence in Allen's data, I think. 
Um, I think the underestimation on Bongoli is, you know, people felt his bad passes more, I think, because they had anchored a negative bias towards him uh, early on. I mean, that, you know, he, he was shite from the beginning. That was this, you know, people had that view of him from the beginning because he had some rough early games. Um, but if you look at the stretch of games where he had either Forrest, actually, I aggregated this data. If you look at the games with Forrest or Elianusia in front of him in 4-2-3-1, I mean, the, the, the output was significant. And his, you know, even in the three Europa League games last year against Rennes, Cluj, and Lazio, if you kind of compare those output versus what Loxalt has done, Lille, Milan, and Sparta, Bolongoli's output those games was significantly better, particularly in attack. So his, he had double the passes to strikers, for example. Uh, he had double the progressive passes. His, his overall progression, ball progression, was similar. Again, back to what Allen was saying, Laxalt's number of duels and tackles has been insane because he's yeah, running yeah. all over the place like a lunatic. Yeah. And, and that, you know, good. He's putting forth effort. But that may not be the best thing as far as defensive structure. Uh, yeah. So he, he, yeah. he's won tackles at a higher rate, and he's had a lot more of them. But I'm not sure that's a good sign from a team defensive yeah. perspective. And, 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 you know, in an attacking sense, I know this is the wrong time to say it after he scored a late equalizing goal. But the, the, the underlying numbers don't suggest he's going to offer that much uh, an attacking sense. He's, he's undoubtedly a better, more aggressive defender than Bolingoli, but from an attacking perspective, his numbers are no better, if not slightly worse. Well, if Hibbs didn't have four men marking Shane Duffy from that free kick, then Diego Laxalt would never have been free for that. I'm sorry, and if I could just, I want to supplement that real quick. So if you go back to some of the graphics that I had on the, the XG differentials, um, the best period of performance that Celtic have had since that data begins, which is basically the, the beginning of Dial's last season, on any rolling period basis was last fall. And that also encapsulates those games that I just referenced where you had either Moy or Forrest at left wing ahead of Bolongoli, and the mix at right back was some variation of El Hamed, Bauer, and Frimpong. So, and, and Edward at, at, at striker. Um, and, and, you know, you, again, it was either Forrest or Christie out, out on the right. And so the, the team output and the XG differential, sound attack, good defensive mix, you know, limiting chances. Uh, obviously, you know, there's a network effect here, right? It's not any individual player. It's overall the structure. You had Iyer and Julian performing at an elite level as well. Um, and, again, there was some mixing in there. Sometimes Christie was at a 10. Sometimes Encham was at a 10. Sometimes Rogic, uh, Rogic, I keep messing up, Rogic was in there. Um, the one anchor that was there, the, pretty much that whole sample, uh, was Bolongoli with one of those two uh, wingers. So, again, that that's, could be correlation versus causation. Um, and, and I'm not saying Bolongoli is the greatest player that ever lived, but he wasn't shite, right? He, 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 he's at Istanbul now playing in the Champions League. Um, if, you know, he's, he's not at, at, in the third division in Sweden. Um, so, you know, he has his issues, the mental part, the stuff that went on, 
with, with COVID, obviously all a train wreck, but we're talking from a performance perspective here, is Laxalt a significant upgrade on Bowling Goalie? And I think in total, totality, the answer is no, in my opinion. Um, maybe a marginal one, you know, kind of plus or minus. I think the fit, I, th I mentioned this last week or the week before, I think the fit, Bowling Goalie's profile is a better fit for Celtic, particularly mm -hmm. for a Lennon coach team um, because of the end product. Yeah, and I do think the context to all of this is that Laxalt's numbers are over a short period of time, so you do have to take that into consideration. And I also think that if Laxalt had more players around him that complemented his attacking ability, like a, do a good centre defence midfield partnership, that would make up for him being up the field all the time, and we might see a better output. Also, we're talking about a player who, and I do agree that it was a weird signing for, for me, he came out of nowhere, and I think that it was more down to a situation where AC Milan wanted to get rid of him, to fit Diego Dallo into their team as opposed to Celtic going out and getting him because he's actually available. Uh, before we finish up, Kieran Tierney, if you're watching this, if you're listening, I love you, I miss you, please come back to Celtic. Never mind what Arsenal are doing, never mind what you think a certain part of Celtic fans think. We love you, we miss you, come back. You know you want to come back. Anyway, that's all we have time for on the Huddle Breakdown episode 3 this week. Thanks to James and thanks to Alan, as always, for their contributions to the show. Remember, you can listen back to that show on iTunes, on Spotify, on Spreaker, wherever you get your podcasts. We're on YouTube as well. Be sure to subscribe and give us five stars if you like the show and try and enjoy the games this week. We'll chat to you later. Thing better than grinding all night for your side hustle is your roommate picking you up with Mickey D's breakfast. The perfect pickup deal. There's a deal for every morning at McDonald's. Right now, taste breakfast perfection when you get a warm and savory sausage McMuffin with egg for just $2.50. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. <sighs> The only thing better than grinding all night for your side hustle is your roommate picking you up with Mickey D's breakfast. The perfect pickup deal. There's a deal for every morning at McDonald's. Right now, taste breakfast perfection when you get a warm and savory sausage McMuffin with egg for just $2.50. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.